Support comes from Spectrum Reach, focused on making local businesses big and big brands look local. Connecting businesses with content, insights, products, and people. Learn more at SpectrumReach.com. Welcome to Spectrum Reach. It's time for a Which is the number one chocolate for drink? pizzas for the price of one. It tastes so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. You know, we can't even talk about decolonizing our medicine until we talk about decolonizing our food. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Tom Philpott, the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones magazine, and Raj Patel, author of, most recently, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. He's also a professor over at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT. Today's secret ingredient is decolonization. And uh, to help us explain why, uh, we're joined by Dr. Rupa Maria. Uh, Rupa uh, teaches and practices medicine in San Francisco, but she is also a singer, songwriter, composer, guitarist, leader of Rupa and the April Fishes, also a badass activist uh, and a leader of uh, a, a range of organizations associated with Standing Rock. Um, and so I, we're just going to jump right in with Rupa. Uh, this is a song that was um, requested when I was out at Standing Rock by some of the grandmothers there on the front line who were getting bombarded by rubber bullets. And they said, could you please write us a song that would give us courage um, as we stand here on the front line protecting our water. So this is a song called Frontline for those grannies. It's about what those law enforcement people were really doing out there. You serve and protect the pipeline. You serve and protect the bottom line. You serve and protect the coal mine Serving up grenades of granite Standing on the front line Serve and protect the ranker You serve and protect that oil tanker Serve and protect the banker Serving up the people with eviction paper You better realize who we are oh. We are the ones who are rising with the water We are the great, great, great grandchildren The ones I couldn't kill, yeah We are the sons and daughters of the earth And what you call law and order Is just another round of colonial mortar What you call law and order Oh no, we see no more deceit Oh, what you call law and order It's just another day of colonial murder What you call law and order Oh no, no, no No, 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 no No, no, no Recognize who we are. Oh, we are the ones who are rising with the water. 
We are the great, great, great grandchildren of the ones that couldn't kill, yeah. We are the sons and daughters of the earth who you don't protect because you serve and protect the ranker. You serve and protect that oil tanker. Serve and protect the banker. You're serving up the people with eviction papers. Serve and protect the pipeline. You serve and protect the bottom line. You serve and protect the coal mine. While we stand here, still standing strong everywhere on the front line. Uh, and Rupert, tell us about Standing Rock. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient. Tell us about Standing Rock. Thank you so much, Raj. Well, I was invited out to Standing Rock by a group of California Native folks um, who were part of the Red Warrior Society. They were blocking the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and they called us when the response to their protest was becoming increasingly militarized. Um, I'm part of a coalition called the Do No Harm Coalition, and our um, work is to address racism and state violence as vital health problems. Um, and so this California, young California Native man called us out there to come and see what was happening with the tactics that were being used against Native Americans. And through that process, I ended up in the medic space there um, every month during the protest camp that grew from, uh, I think, around 2,000 up to 12,000 people. I think total there were probably about 30,000 people there at any given time. Um, during the trying to prevent this pipeline from going through their um, source of drinking water. And through that process, as I was organizing with the folks out there, um, some of the Lakota and Dakota um, health workers and traditional healers um, invited me into a dialogue about creating a more permanent structure there um, for the practice of decolonizing medicine. And um, that started a whole project, which we are calling the Miniwichoni Health Clinic. Um, and Miniwichoni means water is life in um, the Lakota language. And um, that, that experience has been probably one of the most profound experiences of my work, most intersectional experiences of my work in medicine, um, to look at the relationship between um, the health indices in the Dakota, um, Lakota, Dakota people who have some of the worst health indices on the Western Hemisphere, second only to Haiti. Um, now, the Lakota, Dakota people were some of the fiercest resistors to colonization, the, one of the last groups of people to go into the reservation status, into the reservation um, enclosures <clears throat> in the United States. And Haiti was the only successful slave rebellion. And it's fascinating to me that those two groups of people now have some of the worst infant mortality, some of the lowest life expectancy, worst maternal mortalities on the Western Hemisphere. Um, so I see those as, as um, punishments for, you know, the resistance to um, colonization. So as um, we entered this dialogue of what a clinic would look like, um, it's it's just been a fascinating um, peeling back of why are the health indices so bad. So life expectancy for a person of European descent, um, a settler in the Dakotas is 75 years old. And for someone living in the reservation, Lakota or Dakota people, 
the life expectancy is 57 years old. Um, and when you look at the kinds of illnesses that people have, um, we're starting to understand these as as illnesses that can come about as a product of systemic racism or systemic factors that are impeding um, good health outcomes. And I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit the role that food plays in this problem and yes. the sort of changes that were wrought by the colonial colonialization of the area. Yeah, so it's fascinating. So as we've part, the first part of this um, developing this clinic has been just interviewing and listening to people in, in talking circles, listening to elders about just asking simply the questions, what does health mean to you and what does medicine mean? And those have been some of the most revealing conversations to me as a health provider because um, many of the elders say that the diseases that they experience now, the diabetes, the cancer, the heart disease, stroke, these are diseases that colonizers brought. These were diseases that were not known before colonization. And you can think of that as, okay, maybe they just didn't have words for those diseases and those, disease those diseases did exist. Or you could think of the lifestyle and how it has been impacted to go from a nomadic society that lived within close proximity. People lived within close um, communal um, organization together. Um, the way one elder described it to me, she said, you know, medicine for us was not something that you went to when you were sick. It was something that was always in your environment. So you were living next to your medicine people, your plants, the things that you ate were your medicine, your relationship to the buffalo and to the food sources was your, this was your medicine. So the very framing and understanding of medicine and health in the cosmology of Lakota people is directly related to food and to food systems. And so when those food systems were interrupted with the enclosure of these people and the slaughter of the buffalo and the damming of the Missouri River, these three things, which were all colonizing practices, had devastating effects on the health and the food systems of the people. And those things are totally related as they are for all of us. But it's most extremely seen when you look at indigenous people, especially the Lakota Dakota people. That is why this experience of resisting this pipeline was, you know, not just for, you know, the concept that petroleum products are bad for in people's drinking water, which we all know. And the people of Bismarck knew that was bad, which is why they wanted the pipeline rerouted to go over the reservation. But it's a, another colonial tactic um, of poisoning um, or disrupting a vital system for the life and health of people on the reservation. Um, and so the, the elders said to us, you know, we can't even talk about decolonizing our medicine until we talk about decolonizing our food. Um, so what has happened on the reservation, what used to be communities of people that were autonomous and independent with their food, gathering systems of gathering their medicine have become completely dependent on the state and importing. They, it's a food desert. You go to the reservation, there's no food being grown on the reservation and everything that's brought in is, you know, car cancer causing and um, or poor health causing. Um, so there's very little whole food and access to whole and healthy food. One of the stories that one of the elders told me that was very interesting to me and I didn't know about was um, the damming of the river, so the river, the Missouri River, is called Minnesota, um, through um, North Dakota. And where 
the what the colonizers called Cannonball River. So this is where the protest camp was situated. Um, this river, in their language, was called the river that makes sacred stones. And it's because as the river flew into the Minnesota, into the Missouri River, it created these eddies. And these eddies would swirl and generate these beautiful, round, magical stones to them that these were sacred stones. And when the colonizers came, they dammed the Missouri River. And what this did would stop those eddies. And so that never, um, those, those sacred stones were no longer made, which was interesting. But not only that, the cottonwood forests that were surrounding that area were also flooded. And if you look at the rates of diabetes in the reservation, those skyrocketed after that cottonwood forest was damaged when that ecosystem was disrupted. And when you talk with people who have memory and knowledge those cottonwood forests were places where people would go to harvest their food and medicine. So the loss of that vital connection to the food and medicine systems of the hunter-gathering society um, disrupted their own endocrine balance um, and created, so we can look at these diseases as di of diabetes as a direct product of damming the river and flooding their um, natural ecosystems that provided them with food and medicine. So when we talk about medicine in that culture, you're talking about food. You're talking about nourishment. Um, and so those words are very interchangeable. And it is for this reason that as we develop this clinic, this free clinic to practice decolonized medicine, um, we will have a farm around the clinic to reestablish the um, cottonwood ecosystems and to reintroduce um, the cultivation of indigenous foods um, and to provide a, like a seed kiva so that they have their sovereignty in their um autonomy with their own food, their own food grown there. One of the most poetic aspects of this um, is that the one of the only survivors of the Wounded Knee Massacre in the 1800s was a young man, um, Black Elk, who wrote the book um, Black Elk Speaks. Um, and, and his great grandson will be the farmer of this wow. um, clinic around the, the clinic farm. Um, so it's an exciting project, and we're still fundraising for it to get it, you know, off the ground. But we are continuing the dialogue with the people there. Um, I was wondering, can you can you talk a little bit about your background uh, in medicine and in art as well? And like, you're you are also a professor. You, you also teach, right? So how has this experience in developing this clinic informed your teaching practices and how you see medicine when you go back to San Francisco? Oh, it's, it's totally blown my mind um, to think about, you know, the, the humility that is required when you are working with indigenous people um, who've been on this land for 30,000 years and have an uninterrupted culture of medicine um, that is that old. Um, it's very humbling to sit and listen and come from a perspective of trying to understand what their perspective of health is rather than imposing my own views. Um, so it's changing the way I practice medicine in the hospital, um, especially when I'm dealing with communities who've had longstanding histories and cultures um, that have been marginalized um, into a space, putting myself into a space of more inquiry, which is also the space you put yourself into as an artist when you're writing. And when I'm, you know, at the face of creating new music, it's a space of not knowing. 
And so much in medicine is teaching you, you know, how to know and how to be an expert and you tell people what their diagnosis is and you tell them what their disease is. Um, but in actuality, the human body is still such a mystery and how it's interacting with our environment and with our social built environment. Um, it's a it's been a real blessing to learn how to think a little bit more openly and be more humble. Has it disrupted like the your your um, medical institution? Uh, um, they they kind of wonder <laughs> what I'm doing sometimes, but they um, they've been supportive. Um, I think it's the wave of the new generation too. There's a lot more inquiry and um, and curiosity about um, structural issues in society affecting and impacting healthcare. And this example of a colonized people who've been so violently colonized and looking at the health outcomes and starting to see how these things are directly related, that, you know, race-based capitalism is um, directly driving these health factors for these people, um, that you can, you can see it. And, they, and these young doctors who are coming through training now can see and identify and describe in a way that a lot of my colleagues and older don't have that language. Um, so I think if anything is being disrupted, it's through this energy that's coming from the younger generation. And it's just inspiring to be a part of that. One of the uh, many questions I've got about this hugely exciting project uh, at Standing Rock is is around the the imagination of what that these these new food ways might be like right i mean if, if one's thinking about medicine and food as coextensive and one recognizes that in fact this kind of food way isn't settled agriculture it's not monocultures of things you know sort of piled onto or you know or rows on rows and rows of soy um it's different kinds of uh, of medicines cropping up in different ecologies uh, and that means control over land and territory and it means pushing back against the you know the 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 forces that encircle and police um the the, the, the nation and so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit not only about what that what the imagination of a different sort of food and medicine way might look like but also um maybe use that as a way of of helping us get into some of your work around police Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, so I think that a great person to learn from is the ethnobotanist Linda Black Elk, who is um, Luke Black Elk's partner. Um, she is going to be the clinic director of the Minimichoni Clinic. And w- as we were sitting and devising what elements need to be part of the clinic, for her, the kitchen had to be the centerpiece um, because she is practicing this um, way of bringing indigenous foods and traditional herbal healing remedies back into her tribal community in a very active way. And so for her, she's been, you know, really on the um, front line of indigenous communities in the United States discussing how to build their food and healing um, apothecary from within their reservations or in within their land structures that they have. It is very challenging because so many people who are on, you know, in reservations or, or in these, um, so many tribal people in the United States are so deeply colonized. And so, um, like so many of us are. And so the process of providing some political education to the young people 
to reteaching them their language, to reteaching them how to prepare foods, how to go into the prairie and harvest the different herbs and roots and um, things that they use for their concoctions and their tinctures and their um, distillations and their foods. Um, Linda is a, a huge part of reawakening that in her community. So I have, um, I don't have the answer to that, but I can say that she is actively rehydrating those relationships. There's also an amazing seed saver, Rowan White in California. She's an Akwesasne Mohawk, um, Haudenosaunee woman. And those women were very strong seed keepers, um, Iroquois women. And she has a... Um, a whole she's part of this indigenous food sovereignty group that is going throughout the country and helping different tribes develop their own seed kivas and developing their own systems of food um, autonomy in the united states so i think it's a very nascent um, experience but rowan white talks a lot about rehydrating our ancestral promises that we made to the seeds learning how to listen to them again learning how to reawaken those um, relationships that have been there for thousands of years. So it's this imagination that is happening right now is happening right now. It is, it is, this is like current on the edge of what is happening in indigenous communities. And it is extremely exciting as a health person, because this is what I believe can really help people um, maintain their own health sovereignty through reimagining their food sovereignty. One of the things that we can think about is, um, you know, as we look at food, um, the creation of these food deserts and food dependencies of different peoples, whether it's inner city um, minorities or people on reservations, is that for the people on reservations, this is, I feel like this is part of a genocidal tactic. It's a tactic to create um, dependency, to limit autonomy, to limit their power, or even their relationship to the earth and what the earth does or can do. Um, and those genocidal practices are very much still alive and well. And that was something as a doctor, I was sh shocked to see, like I had known, I know in my mind cognitively that Native Americans were, quote, wiped out on this continent. Um, but the reality is that they're still there, and there's many of them there, and they're still fighting the same fights that they've been fighting for over 500 years, which is a fight for their cultural sovereignty, for their health, for their food, for their capacity to speak their own languages, to have their own religions, um, and to have their sovereignty. Um, and when I was at Standing Rock and witnessed not only the sheriff's department, but um, you know, the illegally operating um, Tiger Swan private military contractor, and um, we didn't have a license to operate, you know, shooting rubber bullets into the chests of young 16 year old um, young men from like Crow, um, Cherokee men who ended up coughing up like handfuls of blood in front of me. Um, just the unbelievable violence towards the grandmothers, um, towards the elders. Um, I, I really was witnessing this is this is active genocidal practice in the United States and it comes in many flavors and forms some of it is through limiting autonomy of food limiting autonomy of economics and then this this actual experience of um, violence under President Obama um, where these these groups were um, violating the rights of Native Americans on their own land um you know you mentioned dependency and like I was born in Sydney, Nebraska, which is way western Nebraska, and there's a tribe 
probably about 10 miles north that was just featured in The Guardian because of this mass alcoholism that's happening there. And can you talk about the role of alcoholism in Native American genocidal strategies? Yes, there's a wonderful um, woman um, who just shut down the liquor store outside the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, um, Aloan, um, who is one of my favorite um, badass women I met out there, matriarchs. Um, she's Oglala Lakota. Um, and she has been on a, I think it's been a two-year campaign to shut down this liquor store. So the the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota is a no alcohol. They can't buy alcohol on that reservation because the Native folks have recognized how toxic it is to their communities. But right outside the reservation, there's a liquor store that sells liquor and is just plying the community with liquor. Um, and there are so many people who have suffered because of that. So these young Native Americans, these, this is against the young generation, just went in and staged demonstration after demonstration to shut down um, this liquor store. And it's been closed now for a whole year. So they, I think just this last weekend they were celebrating their sobriety, like celebrating sobriety for a year. Um, and so it is a part of the genocidal tactic is to create, um, you know, you create trauma and you offer, there's no, um, you take away the religion, you take away the ways that those communities have known how to process trauma for thousands of years, their relationship to the land, their sense of place, their religion, their language, their sense of family unit. So many of the children were um, taken away from their families and put in um, boarding schools or put in white family homes to take the Indian out of the Indian. Um, so much so that some of the elders at Standing Rock were telling me how that when the federal agents would come to the reservation, they would strap their babies onto the backs of dogs and run them out into the prairie while the agents were there because they felt that the babies were safer on the back of a dog than in the presence of the um, white folks who were coming to the reservation who would take those children away. And so I think that when you are experiencing trauma and having all the um, neuroendocrine experiences of trauma that then get encoded into your DNA and passed down through generations into intergenerational trauma and then offer, um, take away those coping mechanisms. People are left with very little and that's where you start to see the interpersonal violence and you start to see the dysregulation of behavior um, such as um, drug and alcohol um, use, which is prevalent in colonized societies, whether it's Ireland or Native America. And so I've started to wonder about if there's a colonial syndrome that we can look at um, around the world that um, that is the effect of, you know, centuries of colonization and how people can reclaim their, their dignity through their ancestral traditions to healing themselves. And that's why this clinic is, I think, so exciting, is that it will rely upon their own cosmology of healing and center that. And they want Western doctors like myself as a part of it, but not in the center, not telling them what their illness is, but listening, learning, and then providing support when they ask for it. So it's an exciting position to play. I wonder, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of buffalo or bison in Pine Ridge. Is there, is there an effort to sort of revitalize uh, populations of those 
animals. Because when you read about it in the popular press, you see sort of a white savior like Ted Turner with a, an enormous ranch um, repopulating it with bison. And he's got this <laughs> Montana grill thing. Um, but what, what's going on in, in local reservations in that area for um, to revitalize bison populations? I'm not familiar with that actual work. Um, I know that there, when I was there, I saw a stampede of bison when the police were out there. Um, so there still is very much an alive relationship to bison, but it's not free roaming. And it's there's a lot of politics around ranchers using reservation land to graze, um, so leasing the land. Um, um, but I'm not sure about the native work to reintroduce bison. I'm, and it's not that it's not happening. I'm just not aware. What you said about the this legacy of trauma and not being not having access to treating trauma. I mean, that is like. That is really a profound way of seeing the that this process of addiction, you know. What in what ways does viewing addiction as a colonial um, problem inform the medicine that you are practicing in San Francisco? Oh, it totally does, and I've started to think of it not only from people colonized by European society but Europeans colonized by Christianity. So when Europeans uh, murdered their women, who were the keepers of the earth-based indigenous knowledge in Europe, so the, the millions of women who were murdered as witches in Europe, um, as Christianity started to take more of a mainstream patriarchal space in Christian society, um, that also is a trauma that has been has impacted white folks um, who are now here in the United States, and they carry that with them um, in their DNA. Um, so I think that around the world, we have all been experiencing this effect of um, traumatic dislocation of ourselves from Earth-based understanding, Earth-based relational living, um, which is food based, um, because our food comes from the earth. Um, but in San Francisco, I've had conversations now with my families in the hospital. So if I have, you know, a young black family, um, I had a woman in who was in her fifties and she was in with, um, a crack related. It was a, a crack in San Francisco that had been laced with a antiparasitic agent that caused this horrible, vasculitis reaction that could be fatal and so I had to like let her know she could not smoke crack again um just because this this version of crack was circulating around San Francisco and her kids were trying to get her off crack and her and her cousins and her family and they were so devoted to like trying to help this woman so like let's have a family meeting and let's talk about the legacy of slavery. Let's talk about the legacy of your family. Let's talk about the crack academic epidemic and how it has been used, um, how crack was pumped into poor black neighborhoods in order to create this dysfunction. Um, let's talk about this situation as a macrocosmic experience of um, colonial violence as opposed to you have a problem and you have an addiction and you need, you know, you need help. Um, and it, and it alleviated her, um, 
perspective. It opened her perspective and it opened um, also the family's perspective of what was happening um, so that it was becoming much more of a, 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 almost a normal reaction to extremely abnormal circumstances, as opposed to seeing her as an abnormal reaction to normal circumstances. And so um, it's, it's a, it's, the the way of thinking of medicine as a societal phenomenon as opposed to simply just you know you have a problem with your protein or a problem with a disease system or a problem with a person um, that people don't have the uh, mechanisms to respond to trauma and so they're just reacting out of these impulses i think there was a study with um i'm trying to remember um vietnam vets who when they were in vietnam i think something like they took a cohort of vets and all of them were addicted to heroin. And as soon as they came back from Vietnam, 95% of them were no longer, it's not like they went through treatment. They just weren't addicted because they, they had no way of experiencing that trauma that they were experiencing and coping. So the addiction was part of their coping. As soon as they were removed into a situation that was no longer traumatizing, only 5% of the people were maintaining that addictive Base. So it just allows us to see if, if something is constantly re-traumatizing, um, that addiction might be a, a normal reaction to these abnormal circumstances. So, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's a good link then into your current, uh, well, one of your many current research projects, uh, in particular the, the, the justice study. Um, uh, and I, I wonder if you could talk about some of the, the, the contemporary agents of trauma in, uh, among people of color, at least in, in the United States. So, um, yes, one of my patients was killed by police in San Francisco back in 2011. Um, and as I've been watching what's happened in San Francisco with the rapid gentrification, as more billionaires per square foot on planet Earth now live in on the peninsula of the Bay Area, um, it's rapidly pushed out lots of brown and black folks. And at the same time, we were seeing a rise in police shootings of brown and black folks in San Francisco. Um, and one of these families approached me, the mother of Mario Woods, who was shot, 26-year-old kid who was shot in San Francisco's Bayview District um, in 2014. He was holding a butter knife. Um, I think he was shot 60, 60 times. Um, so Gwen Woods, his mother, approached me and said, I want you to, to do a study for us to look at what happens if the police killing is the wound and justice is the medicine and we never receive our medicine our communities never receive medicine what are the health outcomes if we're left with these open wounds and so we took about a year to devise the research tools to ask that question but we put together a research team with dr sonia mckinsey from santa clara university and myself and then five other folks from uc berkeley um, and ucsf and we've developed this study called the Justice Study. So it's looking to answer that question. It's looking at long-term effects of trauma from law enforcement violence, um, specifically in communities that are most impacted by that violence, which are um, Latino, um, Black, Indigenous, mentally ill, and disabled people in the United States. And so it's a national study. You can find it at www.thejusticestudy.com. And... Um, we are currently enrolling. Anyone can take it, and we're hoping to hear from 100,000 people to get a really strong data set to help policymakers decide the best way forward. You know, the, the story of the 
Dakota and Lakota peoples in, in, in the upper Midwest is kind of a stark example of colonialization and, and, and its impacts, but it obviously isn't the only one in this country. And a place like the Bay Area is loaded with people, probably more people affected by that on the wrong end of that than there are billionaires even, um, pushed out to the margins. And I'm, I'm wondering what sort of decolonialization projects um, specifically around food are you seeing in the Bay Area where people are sort of organizing to take control of their food systems and their health? Yeah, we have an amazing project called, um, so the Ohlone people of the Bay Area, um, led by matriarch Karina Gould, has been trying to get a site called the West Berkeley Shell Mound saved, um, as opposed to being developed on. So these shell mounds that used to exist all over the Bay Area used to be four to 500 feet high. It's how people would navigate the boats, the Spanish coming into the Bay is by looking at these giant you know, they were like four-story buildings, um, these shell mounds where um, Ohlone folks would be living near. They were often burial sites. They were sites where all their shells of, of the food that they would eat were, were thrown. Um, and through that project of trying to preserve this site from being turned into, quote, affordable housing, unquote, and I say that because I don't know many people who could afford to live in the housing that they're proposing, um, that that through this this you know reclamation of land then enters in the project of rec- reclaiming food so there's a young Ohlone man Vincent Medina who's also Trochenyo Ohlone which is the territory the uh, linguistic territory of the East Bay so what is the territory of Huchin um, which encompasses Albany Berkeley and Oakland um, Vincent Medina has been creating his traditional foods and creating them through bringing them from a traditional context into a modern context. And um, he has also resurrected with some friends and some family the Chochenyo language, which they thought was extinct. And now there are children for the first time in a hundred years who are learning to speak Chochenyo first as um, a language. Um, And so Vincent is part of a group of chefs who are recreating um, an indigenous food culture in the Bay Area. There's also Crystal Wapipe, who is the first indigenous female chef to be featured on the Food Network. She's incredible. Um, And then um, Brian Yazi came from Minnesota, where he works under a man who's called the Sioux Chef. Um, The three of them did an amazing dinner. Um, They did one feast at the Intertribal Friendship House, which was a traditional feast where they worked with hunters and gatherers. And so they had traditional people go and catch the salmon, kill the venison, prepare it in the traditional ways, go and harvest the berries, go and um, harvest the miner's lettuce, um, harvest the corn. And they made this amazing feast for 300 people. And then the following Three days later, they did a very fancy foodie feast on the top of a rooftop farm in Berkeley, um, part of a project called Topley Farms that my husband, who is an urban farmer, he's working with indigenous chefs to think about how to recreate their foods and offer foods um, and create spaces for them to celebrate their food culture in a modern context where they can be um, honored. So it's happening, and it and it's happening through the reclamation of space, and language, and food. Is it also happening with uh, a reclamation of time? 
in terms of like for so like the amount of time it takes to cook and prepare and grow things is so different than this kind of technological world that's developing also in San Francisco. Yeah, when Crystal organized this night, the the feast night, she told me about it, I think, three months in advance. And for her, it's a whole process of, you know, you have to ask the hunters to hunt, and then you have to wait for the food. <laughs> to, You know, it's not like you can't decide, I need it by this day. So there was this whole process of praying and waiting and gathering, and um, so it does dilate the time, um, which is which has been a wonderful experience. And it's, and it's hard to live like that when you're living in the fast pace of the Bay Area where everything is so expensive. Um, so it's a really radical act to take yourself out of that time scale and try to create food systems that are independent of it. You know, I'm wondering, like you, you, you were also displaced from San Francisco and you grew up in San Francisco. And as an artist, you experienced this loss of of art in the area and music in the area. So can you talk about the relationship between music and food and um, kind of the, I guess it would be the erasure of the value of art in space now? Yeah, San Francisco has, has really been through, I mean, there's people who are still there and they're still holding out and I love them and I'm so grateful that they're there. But we've lost um, vital ecosystems of artists that were there altogether. And um, in those ecosystems of densely packed artists, um, you get cultural evolution at a rate you don't get when everyone's spread all out, you know, throughout the country or now in other countries. Um, and so not only that, but like if you look at in particular the Mission District where a lot of my music was played, um, that was a very strongly Latino population for about 50 years. Now, I think less than a third of the population of the mission is Latino. Um, but those ecosystems, like, so those kids who grew up in those neighborhoods, they didn't go get bank loans to go to college or federal loans. They got micro loans from within their communities to put them through. So the economic advancement of those people was through these relationships that were several decades old. So when those relationships are disrupted, those people's opportunities for advancement are disrupted as well. Um, so it has an impact on on more than simply just, oh, there's no more cool bars to hang out at. You know, it's like there's there's a lack of forward motion of a whole group of people who have established themselves and established a particular culture in an environment. I've heard lots of tech people complain about like, where did all the cool people go in San Francisco? <laughs> well, how do I tell this? How do I explain this to you? Um, but yeah, you know, there's, you know, we, we're still there. There are people still there, but it definitely has lost something that cannot be replaced. One of the mayor's um, Women running for mayor, Jane Kim, her someone who is writing her policy if she gets elected, asked me if she could interview me about public health. And I said, only if you'll, I only have two things to say. <laughs> I said, for housing, we need to eminent domain the luxury units that are sitting vacant. So San Francisco has apparently 40% of the new units that have been built are sitting vacant. Um, oh, it's Austin. Like, yeah, so you need to eminent domain those units and put the homeless in those units. Um, 
and find a way of moving the funding away from the police department because it cannot be reformed um, into health and human services to provide community safety with new models um, that are based on more of healthcare and hospital-based practices rather than criminal justice or military tactics. Um, and and so, you know, that is, and when, when we had this conversation, she said, well, do you think if we can provide housing like this that the artists will come back? And I said, I I doubt it. I doubt it because I think that, you know, what's been lost is a a je ne sais quoi. You know, there's like a there's like a a very delicate sense of possibility that can't be manufactured through social engineering. Um, It has to exist through social possibility. When you feel that possibility, it grows. And when you don't and it feels um, contrived or engineered, um, it doesn't just, you know, you get something else. How do people listening to us right now begin the project of decolonization? That's a really good question. I think it starts with digging back into one's own ancestry and trying to find the place where we are earth-based. So how far in your ancestry do you have to go before you have a real palpable relationship to not only growing your food, but having a relationship with the earth, a capacity to understand the earth, to understand non-human communication, um, and then having the humility to to listen to people who have been traumatized for centuries um, and to hear their stories and to um, just to listen. So that's, that's where I would start. Planting a garden helps too. Dr. Rupert Maria teaches and practices medicine in San Francisco. She's also a mother and activist and singer-songwriter, lead singer with Rupa and the April Fishes. You can find her music at theaprilfishes.com. You can find more interviews about everything from nationalism to sugar at thesecretingredient.org and subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode wherever you get your podcasts. The Secret Ingredient is hosted by Raj Patel, author of The Value of Nothing, Stuffed and Starved, and most recently, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things and food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine, Tom Philpott. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. We are the great, great, great grandchildren, the ones that couldn't kill, yeah. We are the sons and daughters of the earth, and what you call law and order. It's just another round of colonial mortar, what you call law and order. Oh no, we see no more deceit, oh what you call law and order. It's just another day of colonial murder, what you call law and order. Oh no, 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 no. Recognize who we are. Oh, we are the ones who are rising with the water. We are the great, great, great grandchildren of the ones that couldn't kill. Yeah, we are the sons and daughters of the earth. Who you?
don't protect because you serve and protect the ranker. You serve and protect that oil tanker. Serve and protect the banker. You're serving up the people with eviction papers. Serve and protect the pipeline. You serve and protect the bottom line. You serve and protect the coal mine. While we stand here, still standing strong, everywhere on the front line. On the latest episode of Pause Play, we talk about the return of live music to Austin. You'll hear about three live music experiences from the perspective of a fan, three musicians, and a promoter. Thank you very much, everybody. We're a group of Fantasma. Thank you for having us. We'll see you next time. Peace! You can find Pause Play at KUT.org or wherever you get your podcast.